There's a theory that if you focus on a problem, you're propagating it. Today's guest confronts that idea in regard to racial segregation in the church. Learn more about what he calls the myth of colorblind Christians after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello, and welcome to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan, and in this episode, we hit on a topic that's been a true area of learning as I've matured in my faith. Growing up, I assumed, like so many white American Christians, that talking about race and racial identity in church led to division. It wasn't proper or welcome to do it. Though the term didn't really come up in my childhood, I would have identified as a colorblind Christian who didn't see racial difference as relevant to the church. Our guest today has helped me understand that colorblindness has tended to not be a virtue, and is especially difficult to defend in a church context that's been shaped by American history. Historian Jesse Curtis has written a new book, The Myth of Colorblind Christians, that challenges the idea that there ever truly was a colorblind tradition of Christianity. Of course, on a topic like colorblindness and Christianity, there are bound to be many differing opinions among listeners. The point of the conversation today is to learn from someone who spent the better part of a decade trying to understand how Christians who have defended colorblindness have acted in the world and how the ideas they promoted have contributed to today, where the American church continues to be highly segregated along racial lines. Jesse Curtis is an assistant professor of history at Valparaiso University. He received his BA in educational ministries from Moody Bible Institute, his MA in history from Kent State University, and his PhD in history from Temple University. He's the author of many peer-reviewed works, as well as the book we discuss in today's episode, The Myth of Colorblind Christians. Evangelicals and White Supremacy in the Civil Rights Era. I hope you enjoy this Upwards conversation with Jesse Curtis. We're really happy to have you on the podcast and Jesse and, and just want to know how you got interested in history and particularly the history of American evangelicalism. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Well, it's a long story. I'll try to make it short. I don't even know where to start. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that uh, for me growing up evangelical or maybe fundamentalist we kind of uh my dad was a pastor and uh we had a little church in western maryland and out in the country in the mountains uh pretty much all white area almost at that time and uh i know we straddled the evangelical fundamentalist line because billy graham was like one of the good guys, but also, mm. also a little suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, the suspicion, that's the fundamentalist side. But uh, I, I promise this does relate to your question because um, I'm really grateful for that upbringing because I think it, uh, even though the environment around me, the sort of cultural analysis was often in an anti-intellectual and sort of reactionary mode, I think it did give me a sense of myself in time uh, of that, you know, one has choices about how one is going to live 
And one one does not need to merely just go along with the tide of whatever is done these days. And so I think that did give me a kind of primitive sense of historical consciousness, Hmm. (laughs) you want to put it that way. And probably has a lot to do with why I became a historian, but the the more immediate turn uh, is when I studied for my MA at Kent State University, I was working on sort of how white supremacists uh, appropriated colorblind language to try to defend white supremacy. That's what I was working on. I thought I would work on that for my PhD. And things just went in a different direction by the time I got to Philly in 2014. And and that's at Temple. There was a professor. Sorry, go ahead. That was at Temple University. Right yeah. at, okay. at Temple University, and there was a professor at Temple. I remember, you know, he was aware of my faith background and my 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 faith, and he said, "You know, Jesse, don't be afraid to write what you know." And I was kind of like. I can do that. (laughs) And um, sort of that combined with sort of the current events that were going on in 2014. And it it really led me in sort of autobiographical places in terms of where this study of evangelicals and race came from. I wanted to sort of unearth my own inheritance. Very interesting. And I think um, we have pretty similar backgrounds. Um, I was a missionary kid, a little different, L- grew up in Colorado Springs after that. Um, but, you know, one thing I when I tell my own story and I ended up going to Colorado State University, probably pre- pretty similar to Kent State. Um, I often get asked why I didn't go to a you know Christian college or something like that. Do you have a particular reason you ended up at a place like Kent State versus, uh, you know, a, a Christian college or something like that? Yeah, well, so so I skipped a lot of stuff because, like mm. I said, it's a long story. Because yeah. I was I I went to Moody Bible Institute. Oh. So and again, straddling that fundamentalist evangelical line, right? I went to Moody and met the woman who became my wife there, uh, and I was thinking, you know, I need to do something really important with my life, mm. and I need to help people. So I was doing sort of more social work type of stuff. I was working in a group home uh, in Chicago after graduating, and I found that fulfilling in a lot of ways. But for a whole host of reasons, my wife and I, we moved to Ohio to, so that we could work together uh, with at-risk kids, kind of like house parents. And that raised the option of going back to school. And my wife said to me, if you could do anything, you know, what would you do? What job would you like to have? And I, having no idea what I was even talking about, (laughs) I said, you know, I think it would be fun to be a history professor. (laughs) This was, this was uh, 2011. And I didn't even have, I didn't have the undergraduate history credits even to be able to apply to an MA program. So I, started going to Kent State uh, just undergrad classes to get history credits. Mm. And then I um, went into the MA program and on from there. Well, I'm glad I asked. That's very interesting. (laughs) Um, uh, One other question about your background, Jesse, and then we'll get into um, talking about your book. Um, 
and that's, uh, you've alluded to it, but maybe if you could just uh, voice it again, uh, what's the sort of religious communities that you've been a part of, um, whatever you want to share, um, that have really, you know, shaped who you are and, uh, you know, been part of, of your life uh, up until this point? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm debating, you know, how, how much do I say here? Uh, av- you know, when I got to Chicago, uh, lots of culture shock, and I, I was flabbergasted after coming from rural, white, western Maryland. And um, Alicia, my now wife, uh, she had all these crazy ideas. She said, oh, I'm going to live on the west side and work there and worship there. And, and I'm thinking, the west side is 98 per- at that time. Garfield Park is 98% black and... Mm like what are you even talking about you know and uh, so she had a really profound influence on me we ended up at a, a house church on the west side which actually was pastored primarily by white pastors actually which was um, problematic in some respects it was a predominantly black church um i sort of learned gosh a whole lot there <laughs> uh became very uh, disturbed and uncomfortable uh, living on the West Side and having sort of a racial awakening. Um, when we moved to Ohio, our, the church there, uh, we went to South Street Church in, in Akron, and that was the first time I had been in a church where it was very clear a, a middle-class person was welcome, but that's not who the church was for. Hmm. And people who were homeless, people who were addicts, people who were very poor uh, came in and, and felt at home there. That was different to me. Right. Um, very different. And and that was that was meaningful. And that was predominantly white church, actually, I... I I think, although it certainly was um, diverse uh, and certainly very diverse socioeconomically. Mm. Um, And then in Philly, we went to another very small church for most of our time in Philly. We were the the token white family in the church, uh, (laughs) which had it it was a. uh, uh, What should I say about that church? Uh, Very small but very diverse we had a korean pastor and Mm. black and puerto rican and uh lots of lots of different folks there and it was just good to be uh in a space that felt um part well cards on the table part of it was honestly looking back on it over all these years trying to stay in the church while knowing that what I had grown up in, I needed distance from, Mm. right? And so being in these spaces that to me were very different um, was important for me to be able to retain um, a faith at all. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing, Jesse. I think the the background probably helps listeners um, as we jump into 
um, this book you've published uh, last year, uh, The Myth of Colorblind Christians, Evangelicals and White Supremacy in the Civil Rights Era. And uh, uh, the book, um, uh, you know, gets into this this topic in the title, Colorblind Christianity, and uh, what that is, what that uh, what that isn't, where it comes from. Um, and uh, it seems like you've, uh, you know, been thinking about these things and not just been thinking about, but sort of living out uh, different ways of trying to explore um, your background, you know, for for over a decade now. Um, and that definitely comes through in the book. Uh, th th this is something um, you've spent a lot of time researching, going to archives, reading other historians, uh, but also something you're uh, personally in invested in. Um, I thought we could start yeah. by uh, just talking about the title. So the myth of colorblind Christians. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an opening on, on how you exactly want to attack. I, I wondered first if you could um, maybe define colorblind Christians, but but from there um, uh, we can yeah. talk about different aspects. Yeah. Well, let's let's define that term. I mean, that's that's the whole ball game, right? Right. And <laughs> colorblind Christians that that stayed through all the different iterations of the title. You know, this is one of those projects that has had different titles at different times. But colorblind Christians was always there. So mm. let's define that. Mm. And I, in some way, I, I think the easiest way to begin to approach it is to think about what I would call mainstream colorblindness before we think about the Christian version. Mm. Um, and, and colorblindness is something that most any American has experienced, even if they are not familiar with how historians talk about it. And uh, so when historians talk about colorblindness as like an ideology, as a way of dealing with race, we're usually talking about a ideology that emerges after the sort of during and after the civil rights movement and becomes used for conservative purposes politically. And the easiest way to see it is Famously and infamously, Dr. King's dream speech, right? right? Yeah. People who have no idea anything King said in the last five years of his life still know that he said, I have a dream, content of character, not color of skin, that kind of thing. And colorblindness in its essence is taking that rhetorical aspiration, appropriating it, and claiming it as this is the prescription to get there. Mm. Um, and if you look at King in context, it's overwhelmingly clear that he was not offering a prescription to, for how to get there, but it was rhetorical, it was aspirational. Mm. But so colorblindness says race is a problem of consciousness. If we talk about it less, if we think about it less, things will be better. The fundamental problem is our consciousness of racial division, not the material circumstances that undergird this. And so the solutions are individualistic, personal, um, and not systemic, right? Mm. So all that to say, that's usually what we're talking about when we talk about colorblindness. So what am I talking about when I talk about Christian colorblindness, right? Yeah. And there's, there's overlap, but there's also difference. And one of the easiest ways to see the differences is to think about idioms, right? Like if in the mainstream form, King's speech is a touchstone. 
in the Christian form, it's scripture itself. After all, we are all one in Christ. Right. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, right? It is scripture itself that seems to provide this unassailable grounding for this theology, like this is scripture, right? We're one in Christ, we're the body of Christ, we're meant to be unified. Um, so, in Christian colorblindness, the idea is racial progress comes about through the individual conversion of human beings, through spreading the gospel, through us being conscious of our identity in Christ first, right? That is supreme, and that supreme identity in Christ is expressed by being colorblind in the church. We don't need to focus on race because we have something so much more important in common. We're united in Christ, right? So the overlap, I think, with the mainstream is that this sense that consciousness is the issue, right? Uh, it's individualistic. Christian colorblindness, key difference, it's sacralized, right? Right, right. The, it's perceived as coming directly from Scripture and being God's way to deal with race. And so, in that sense, the stakes become actually way higher. Mm. Like, if you're a conservative-minded person, in terms of mainstream colorblindness, a race-conscious person, like, maybe they're foolish, they're a liberal, whatever, but in the Christian context, and you are a believer in Christian colorblindness, a race-conscious Christian, they are an immature believer. Right. <laughs> they're, they're failing to put their identity in Christ first, according to this theology, right? Or they're, they're, um, bringing, so di they're bringing division to the, to the body of Christ in a way, right? They're bringing division. Right. That's right. And so, the, and this is sort of the final point of, of overlap between the mainstream and the Christian form both are very often delivered in a reactionary mode um, so that Christian colorblindness often becomes about, as you were just saying, telling people, please be quiet. We're in a Christian space here. That is divisive talk. Let's focus on our unity in Christ. Um, that's that's sort of my overview as I see it. Yeah, and that's that's very helpful. Um, wh what would you, um, uh, you know, I think our listeners come from a lot of different places. I think some of them this this is a something that might they might be sort of intellectually familiar with, but they're coming out of a mainline tradition or a different tradition that might actually have overlap with that broader American cultural colorblind Christianity, but maybe they haven't experienced it as viscerally. In, in a church setting. And then I think there's a lot of our listeners who probably have been in um, evangelical churches where some version of this is um, is operating um, or has been or continues to. Y your title is the myth of colorblind Christians. What are you trying to get at with um, calling it a myth? Right. Yeah. Well, that's what there is a backstory there. The The proposal I had originally sent to NYU didn't have that phrase. It was just colorblind Christians, black and white evangelical encounters in the era mm. of civil rights or something like that. And I liked that it said black in the title because I wanted to wanted readers to know how important black evangelicals were to the story. Mm. But uh, really, the marketing department came back and said, 
this is confusing. <laughs> you know, like what about like like people are going to think you're endorsing Christian colorblindness. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they said, what if we put the myth of? <laughs> and I said, okay, okay, I can live with that. I didn't like it. I said, mm-hmm. okay, I can live with that. Um, but I, but I, so I do think, obviously, I, I'm not saying there's no such thing as colorblind Christians. That's part of the whole schema of the book is that, I, you know, that's my sort of category, right, that I'm naming. But I think it speaks to myths of racial innocence that, you know, as evangelicals, yeah, we had some some bad stuff back in the day, but basically we've done well with race, like we sort of fixed it. Um, that kind of myth. Mm. And then at a probably even deeper level, the myth that the myths colorblind Christians hold in terms of is this theology of race doing what we're actually claiming it does. Right. Right. Um, I mean, that's the myth that it, that it does what it claims to do. <laughs> right. And I, I, I definitely picked that up um, reading the book that uh, what I thought part of the myth was, was that some of the most vocal defenders of colorblind Christianity actually talked about uh, uh, divisions along racial lines a lot um yeah. and and actually shape their their um i'm thinking of the church growth movement and other things it shape their entire way of thinking about the world around um you know trying to create homogenous groups of people and and one of the ways they define hom- homogeneity was around race so um right so it, definitely they're sort of a, a at least to my eye you know my eyes um a pretty stark um mythology that wasn't aligning with um the way I, th- they th- I think they thought they were um, acting in the world. Right. I think that's right. It's sort of like racial consciousness for me, but not for thee. My <laughs> racial consciousness is okay because it's in pursuit of evangelization. It's for the sake of the gospel, right? Your racial consciousness is a distraction from the gospel, not okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so before going forward, I want to dive into a couple of the key sort of um, distinctives of colorblind Christianity. And and I think they'll be really interesting to talk through. Um, I did want to just lay out an arc of the history part. So um, you've mentioned this is sort of something that emerges during the civil rights period. I think we're, we're thinking sort of the, the 60s in particular. Um, there's major civil rights legislation in 64, 65. Um, King gives his famous speech in 63. Um, how would you summarize sort of the arc of your, of your sort of tracking of colorblind Christianity up until, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you end sort of in the 21st century. So, uh, yeah, up until then. Yeah. 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 The, the arc, I remember my dissertation advisor saying, where's the arc, you know, where's the change? And I wanted to say, well, it's just ambiguous. I don't know. Um, but no, <laughs> there is an arc, there is an arc. And, and I think this is, it's so important to emphasize the role of black evangelicals here and the distinction between, like when I say Christian colorblindness, I'm really talking about this theology and its reactionary mode, mm. you know, that's often used to silence people. But there are, that is not to say that there aren't forms of theolo- colorblind theology that don't serve different purposes. And so one of the things that I emphasize in chapter one is you really see black evangelicals in the 1960s using forms of colorblind 
ideology to press for inclusion in white evangelical spaces. And the message is, because we are one in Christ, you must include us, mm. right? Mm. And, and that, that is colorblindness, but it's colorblindness in a progressive mode saying, we need to reform here for the sake of Christian unity, right. you know? Um, and there's this fascinating twist where increasingly white evangelicals adopt that kind of language but instead of saying you know we need to reform and we have the power to do so because we're united in christ and we can have difficult conversations instead of saying that they're saying because we're united in christ be quiet mm. right mm. um and so i talk about this shift in the 60s i mean it's it's such a you know where you put the inflection point is so debatable but this shift from a kind of sacred whiteness where it, you really do see in some very explicit way ways white evangelicals talking about whiteness as a sacred calling right like right. it's not just a racial identity it's a divine gift that we've been given uh that that shatters in the 60s mm -hmm. and it becomes increasingly impolite and and untenable to talk in those ways but what replaces it is this ambiguous colorblind language that actually does a really good job at sort of preserving the status quo in these spaces i think mm -hmm. um so i talk about that arc that story through you know like you said the church growth movement the the colleges the churches and then by the time we get toward the end of the book with the 1990s, you see this racial reconciliation movement that has often been framed, certainly at the time, and even by some scholars, as this like big shift, this big turning point. Like, wow, look at white evangelicals with promise keepers and things getting interested in race and working for racial reconciliation. And part of what my book is trying to do is put that in a larger context, uh, temporal context and ideological and theological context and say, this is racial reconciliation. This is like the crowning achievement of Christian colorblindness. Mm. It's, it's the same old discourse and it's the, the same old story about individual heart change somehow producing racial progress on a mass scale. Um, so the epilogue or the conclusion, yeah, as you said, I do go into the 21st century just briefly. Uh, and I think that black evangelicals who had experience in white evangelical spaces saw the crisis coming. Mm. Right. Because they had already seen how white evangelicals in so many times and places had deployed theology scripture to thwart change to maintain the status quo to keep power and so in the 21st century the political bid for power well that rings familiar we've seen that before already in the church right um and as I think about the 
um, you, you talk about the crisis, and I think if I'm tracking with you, it's sort of in the last, particularly five years, but but maybe a little longer than that. There's just been a ton of um, uh, well, there's, I think you end the book talking about there's actually you know uh, evidence that there's just an exodus of non-white um, and particularly black evangelicals from. Uh, evangelical churches. Um, but g- going back to um, the last five years and just so much has been written about trying to elevate the history of racism in the church um, and uh, um, and really just trying to shine a light like we have in, in a lot of different areas on um, these sort of persistent issues that um, uh, are sort of coming to the surface now. Um, and I think about you, you, you start that, that epilogue with um, uh, Divided by Faith, a book from 2000 that uh, in many ways just I- identified exactly what you said was sort of the arc, which is that there's, I believe the term they use was theological toolkit or, or something close to that, yeah. Yeah. Um, th- that there's just something lacking in the evangelical toolkit uh, to be thinking about issues like racism in ways beyond um, this individualistic uh, mode that really dominated um, the 90s. And so, I don't know, I think about sort of there's there's two, at least two um, sort of uh, problems <laughs> heading into the 21st century. One being there is just a lack of theological resources by many evangelicals to think about these things. And then there's also these other influential ideas um, that are sort of starting to take hold in the church around politics in particular. Not that they weren't there before, but um, mm-hmm. I think we see them, uh, you know, sort of picking up um, that uh, that creates a, a different type of theology or one that um, is um, uh, turning even um, harder away from any type of colorblindness and maybe even moving into a sort of Christian nationalism that um, reminds you of pre-civil rights uh, evangelicalism right. in some way. Um, yeah. Okay, well, well go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say, um, and Divided by Faith, on a personal level, changed my life. It's an amazing mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. and um, But as a scholar, I'm... I'm more, I'm, I'm a little more harsh or something or call me more cynical or, or what have you, but you know, the classic sort of historiographical debate on a whole host of subjects is like, are, are we talking about unintended consequences here? You know, a, a lack of tools or good intentions gone awry, or are we talking about in the end, people actually getting what they prioritize? Mm. Mm. And I lean much more toward that latter view that white evangelicals uh, with things like the church growth movement have gotten exactly what they tried to get. Uh, They prioritized the growth and they prioritized bringing people in and uh, actively taught against, you know, prioritizing justice. Um, And so that's, that's where I, as a historian, take a more hard-edged view of it, I think, than um, many evangelicals themselves do. Right. There's definitely a trade-off there. And I think you show that um, throughout the history, that um, there's a desire for growth. And um, and we'll get into that. And, and that, that growth um, requires sort of um, leaning into problematic American social trends as opposed to opposing them or or offering an alternative to them. Um, I thought one way we could talk about, and maybe this gets back to that toolkit idea, but uh, two of the, the sort of terms that seem under debate between colorblind Christians and, and, and those who oppose 
colorblind Christianity, um, are the gospel and the church. And sort of what, what, do, what do we even mean when we sort of invoke um, uh, who, sort of what is the gospel? Um, and then sort of who is the church? And I wonder if you could talk about, particularly, let's start with the gospel, sort of what, um, what is within the colorblind world, like what is the gospel? What, what is the thing that they think, um, uh, you know, Christians are called to share and to sort of um, bear witness to uh, in the world? And how does that yeah. uh, sort of, uh, how does that understanding change if you move outside of the colorblind Christian world? Right. Yeah. Well, for colorblind Christians, the gospel is a gospel of personal salvation, right? Individual regeneration. Repent, confess your sins, believe in Christ, be saved. And uh, I, as you mentioned earlier, I, I framed this debate around the Lausanne Congress in 1974. Uh, that's where this debate really comes to a head. What even is the gospel. And can you explain and, what the, the Lausanne conference is? Right. And this is sort of Billy Graham's answer to the World Council of Churches in a way. And uh, I mean, it's a big deal. This is like an unprecedented gathering of thousands of evangelicals from all over the world. And it's it not just a, a, an American thing. It is uh, a really significant gathering. And Mark Knoll has said, you know, Catholics had Vatican II, evangelicals had Lausanne, like, like it's a big deal. Um, but if you actually look at the speeches at that Congress and you look at the, the sort of main uh, statement that was produced and then the sort of minority statement from the social justice group, at the core, people are debating about what precisely is the gospel, is it only uh, this gospel of personal salvation, uh, how does social justice relate to it? Is social justice intrinsic to the gospel? Is it merely an implication of the gospel? These debates are contentious, right? And people like Donald McGavran, uh, the founder of the church growth movement who had one of the prime speaking slots at Lausanne, he taught very explicitly that Conversion is chronologically and um, theologically prior to worrying about ethics. Mm. You know, get them to say the sinner's prayer, get them in the door, and we kind of worry about ethics later. Um, lots of evangelicals from the global south, um, some radical white evangelicals some black evangelicals in the u.s really had problems with that view right and most famously renee padilla gave a speech that scholars i mean i mean the public is not aware of this right scholars are well aware of this speech from renee padilla in which he attacked what he called american culture christianity where uh people can come to christ without being challenged ethically without having a true repentance and reorientation of their whole selves. Um, so for Padilla, for these sort of radicals, the gospel is a gospel of uh, a new community. I mean, and that's what the church is. It's a countercultural community. And to be saved without coming into that new community is kind of a contradiction in terms. 
uh, you're not saved as a lone ranger and get to go do your own thing. You're invited into a community that challenges all of the uh, unjust social structures of, of its society. So one of the things that is funny about that speech from Padilla is that people have tended not to notice is that he is absolutely directly attacking the church growth movement in particular. He's attacking this American faction for prioritizing growth over a vision of justice and sort of when you call someone to repentance, you're calling them to take up their cross, right? And if they don't, you know, if if we don't get growth from that, so be it. At least we've proclaimed the good news. Um, yeah, and I think that, so we, we've talked about the church growth movement a bit, and I think it's, um, it's helpful to, to just unpack exactly what that, so it's a theory of how churches can grow, um, right. which isn't on its face a bad thing. Uh, I think most Christians everywhere want to make new disciples and, and uh, grow the church. But, but the, the sort of theory underlying it um, is, is what someone like Padilla would have a, a major issue with. Um, yeah. yeah, can you just talk about what is the church growth movement uh, and, and sort of, I think the really important thing for um, people who aren't familiar with that is that this really, this church growth theory of, of growing churches is very, very popular in American Christianity. And it becomes sort of yeah. the dominant way, at least on the evangelical side, and I'd imagine even beyond it, um, churches understand, you know, how are we going to grow in the next generation? It's along the principles of the church growth movement, at least for a while. So yeah, just tell us about what the church growth movement is. Yeah, I mean, that's right, Dan. And I think people say, oh, I, I've never heard of it. And I say, yeah, but trust me, you've experienced it. Right. right. <laughs> and. And I, I think that the, the backstory, it's really fascinating, but it's not just of, you know, antiquarian interest, like I happen to be fascinated with it. It's key to understanding these dynamics in evangelicalism and how and why white evangelicalism has gone wrong. The church growth movement, it did not start in an effort to defend segregation or something mm -hmm. like that. Right. Uh, it started with Donald McGavern's work in India as a missionary. And he's looking around at the, the missionary churches in India that are stagnant, right? And he's like, why aren't we growing? And what he begins to realize, and his, his first major book is uh, 1954 or 1955, um, calling together his insights from 20 years of study, because he begins to realize this back in the 30s. Mm. He says, wow, we're trying to turn every new convert into a Western individual. We're plucking them out of their culture, and the price of becoming a Christian is that you have to become like an American or like an English person. Uh, and he says, that's wrong. We need to invite people to Christ without disrupting their culture, without disrupting their social bonds. And so I just want to sit with that point for a moment yeah. It's very, a very powerful and important point. Like in some ways, McGavran was directly assaulting uh, a paternalistic, imperialistic missionary mindset. Right. Right. Um, but what he said was, here's where it starts to get dicey, right? He <laughs> says, you know, let's not tell Indian people that they have to mix with other castes. We can have whole people movements coming to Christ within caste lines instead of 
trying to get people to go across caste lines. Mm. Now, at that time, he has no thought of applying this to the U.S. He thinks the U.S. is this hyper-modern, individualistic place and doesn't apply. McGovern literally says, this is in the 50s, he says, it does no good to say tribal people shouldn't have racial prejudice. He says, they do have it, and we can use it. It should be made an aid to evangelization, he says. It should be used. Right. Fast forward 20 years in the wake of black power and kind of the, the ethnic revival of white people rediscovering their roots, and church growth theorists here in the United States are literally saying, oh, people have intense social bonds and, and ethnic identities here too, and we can use it here. <laughs> and there is a deliberate effort to invest in white identity to grow the church. It's explicit and deliberate. And, uh, but, but, but this is where this is where the rubber meets the road. They are not, like Don McGavran could not care less about segregation as such. He's all about what will grow the church. Right. What will grow the church. But that's where, you know, Padilla's criticism comes in. Like Padilla saying, you have to have this ethical grounding. You have to have this kingdom ethics framework because growing the church, in fact, is not a by any means necessary proposition. Right. You know, right. it's Christ's job to grow his church. <laughs> we are to be faithful and follow the ethics of the kingdom of God. So you see the, the difference there. McGavern is incredibly pragmatic, incredibly pragmatic. And, and that's characteristically evangelical, isn't it? To sort of pick up any tool at hand to further evangelization. And I think well, that was a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you think about um, not only is it pragmatic, but um, oh, maybe this is part of the definition of pragmatism, but the success sort of justifies the means, right? So right. so this is the this would be the American sort of skepticism of a Padilla critique, which is, you know, if it's working, churches are growing, right. this must be, uh, you know, God's will um, that that we proceed this way and so you're then caught in a you're sort of unable as long as it's successful at least you're, you're sort of unable to critique it from within because um because the success itself is proof that you're on the right that's track right. and um i think that's that's an interesting you know interesting to think about there's so many historians have talked about um the late 20th century being you know i, I think of stephen miller the age of evangelicalism or something where right. th there's a definite sense within the evangelical world that they are on the ascendance that right. uh, not just numbers wise and and you know comparing themselves to the mainline which is experiencing decreasing uh mainline churches decreasing numbers but also in in political and cultural spheres there is a sort of exertion of evangelical influence and so all right. you know all indicators seem to be pointing at least worldly indicators seem to be pointing to um they're really onto something like this is really this must be where the church should be moving and um and yet you you continually throughout the story as as this sort of momentum is building um highlight the critiques of of uh, colorblind Christianity and uh, the church growth movement. By the way, with the church growth movement, just wanted to raise the the key term within that is the homogenous unit principle, um, yeah. which is the idea that uh, p 
people are best with other people, uh, or particularly they're more eager to join a church if that church is just with people that are just like them. And right. um, anyway, so so that that whole way of thinking is really dominant. If you could just talk for a minute about the critics, um, the going all the way back to the '60s, who are sort of mm-hmm. sniffing around the church growth stuff, are seeing where um, this is probably headed. Many of them black Christians, but also people like Padilla um, who are looking on the outside. Um, yeah. yeah w- 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 how would you summarize sort of their, their critique of this uh, beyond what we've talked about? Yeah. Well, first, this isn't a critique, but I just wanted to add to, you know, this classic definition of the homogenous unit principle. Uh, the, you know, men like to become Christians without crossing race, class, language barrier. And the defense that you will very often hear even today is that, oh, McGavern and the movement in general, that was a observation. They observed that that was the case, right? Mm. But in fact, the teaching was very explicit that this was prescriptive. Mm. Like, not only that this is what people like, but it's our job to give it to them, right? Mm. So the critiques, uh, I haven't mentioned um, Clarence Hilliard yet. I haven't mentioned John Perkins. Um, Those are two big names that, that come up in some of the chapters. And then also just critiques from ordinary, like, black students at white evangelical colleges. Not that they're on an academic discourse level critiquing the church growth movement as such, but they're critiquing these kinds of ideas. Um, Mm. But I think that Hilliard and Perkins, part of what they're saying is... And these are both uh, black black ministers, black writers in the in the yeah, 60s, and 70s. Them, yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and Hilliard in particular had a background in white evangelical spaces. He had gone to Buffalo Bible Institute, which later um, was sort of absorbed by Houghton in New York. And, um, and then he was a pastor, a co-pastor at Circle Church on the west side of Chicago, which was a church that was deliberately trying to be multiracial. And he actually got fired from that church basically because of um how sort of the stand he took in terms of criticizing even people like billy graham Mm -hmm. you know criticizing this methodology but i think the basic critique that uh hilliard was making was what does it mean what are the implications of pursuing success pursuing the numbers in a racist society. And of course, then, you know, you're already opening up a can of worms there. Like Hilliard is taking it as a given that, yeah, this is a racist society, right? Mm-hmm. Which you already have an argument on your hands there. Um, he was right, especially when he was talking in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but, you know, it's an age of white flight. America's cities are in crisis. And, you know, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, they're not accidentally starting their churches in growing white suburbs. It's conscious, it's strategic. And uh, in 1982, John Perkins, who, uh, well, I should tell his backstory too, man. John Perkins says, the white evangelical church is the most segregated racist institution in America. Mm. (laughs) You know, he's not pulling any punches. And he absolutely, he actually was a pioneer in speaking the language of racial reconciliation 
But for him, it was comprehensive. It's economic, it's social, it's spiritual, it's interpersonal, it's hard work, demanding sacrifice. And, and so he's offering this much broader vision of what the church should be, what it could be, what is demanded of Christians living in a racist society. And white evangelicals kind of absorb a little bit of that talk and re reduce racial reconciliation to interpersonal friendship, you know? Um, so over and over again, you see black evangelical critiques not only being ignored in many cases, but being appropriated. And sort of the, the real hard edge of the critique being sanded off, and then we're left with this fuzzy little happy thing that we can manage. Right. Well, and being, being filtered through, as we talked about, sort of the assumptions about what the scope of the gospel is. And so if, if the gospel is, you know, uh, totally about individual conversion, well, then, you know, something as important as racial reconciliation is probably on that level as well. So there's sort of a, um, there's a filtering of these ideas down into the framework that uh, evangelicals have to think about um, their faith uh, in a way that that does right. seem to uh, sort of peel off all the hard parts or, or the parts that would be harder outside the spiritual uh, realm and particularly um, thinking of broader institutional reform or, or, or social reform in that sense. And, and, and to me, the question is like, well, why is that? Because it's, it's not the case that white evangelicals are so determined to strip away everything but the interpersonal on every issue, right? Certainly right. not on abortion, right? right? Right. On abortion, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, but not on, on race. And, you know, one of the points I try to make in the book is that even though Christian colorblindness is professing to be about bringing about racial harmony and reconciliation, what it does really, really well is keep this kind of rickety, fractious coalition of evangelicals together mm. while protecting white evangelical identity from sort of self-scrutiny. Mm. And to me, that's, that's like, that's the whole ball game. Yeah. Well, I, I want to turn just in the last few minutes we have to thinking about, um, uh, well, sort of the present uh, and and the future on this maybe a bit. And what part of me just thinks with the um, uh, with declining church attendance in the U.S. sort of across the board, you know, in part the the and I mean the church growth thinking has has gone through phases, and that's not sort of uh, at least in its pure form, not where many, many evangelicals are at today and how they think about church growth. But I think the broader mentality of like, if something's working, it's probably right. Um, working in terms of growing the church is probably right. I think we're in a moment where that could be reexamined in the sense that um, most most tactics aren't working right now. <laughs> um, so so there's a moment to, to sort of reflect and maybe think deeper about um, some of those ethical commitments or, or sort of where you're, where, where different people are getting their assumptions, um, about this. Um, I also think about the, we talked about it a bit and your book is part of this, just the, um, shining light on some of this history in a way in the last decade that, um, people have been doing that for decades, but there seems to have been sort of a, um, a, we're, we're experiencing a broader social moment around, uh, race in American society and certainly in the church as well. 
Um, and then I also think about there are some pretty positive prescriptions out there. And I would say that in the last decade as well, coming from theologians, coming from uh, pastors who have been thinking about these things pretty deeply. One that I was just reading um, was by uh, Jarvis Williams, actually a, a professor at Southern Baptist yeah. Theological Seminary, an African-American professor who has a new book called Re uh, Redemptive Kingdom Diversity. That is a biblical theology of the people of God that is trying to emphasize um, that the, the people of God have always, the, the vision through the Bible is that it's always a diverse community. And that's actually what sets it apart from nations and tribes around that do uh, sort of follow the homogenous unit principle um, uh, wherever they go. So anyway, there's a, there's a, I think there's a few trends on the horizon that point to maybe there's a, a shift, but you've given this a lot more thought than I have. Do you have any particular bright spots that, that um, um, you look to when you think about what's the next uh, phase for um, the part of the church that's gone through colorblind Christianity. Um, yeah, any, any, uh, you don't have to be, uh, disingenuously hopeful, but, but looking for just a, any indications. <laughs> no, I, I, I do see bright spots and, um, well, I'll just say this. I don't know if it's going to go over well, but the demographic decline that you already referenced gives me hope hmm. and I'll, I'll explain. I mean, mm -hmm. Because I, I do think it's, before I say bright spots, I think that it's worth reckoning with, you know, God's promises are, are to the world and to, to God's church and uh, not to white evangelicalism, mm. right? And so uh, one could even take hope if in believing that God's judgment is arriving at the door of, of, of my tradition, you know? Um, that could be a hopeful thing. Um, but, but beyond that, I think there's a lot of ferment on the margins, um, both at um, sort of elite levels and down in the grassroots. I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned Dr. Williams' book. Uh, I don't know how many people have told me they've read Jamar Tisby's books. Right. I mean, the audience that has picked that up um, is huge. Um, the platforms that people like Esau Macaulay have and the people listening to them. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, go to any city and find people doing good work among the poor. You'll find evangelicals um, of all backgrounds. The thing, as a historian, though, I'm, I'm, I'm quick to pause and say, but wait a minute, there was a lot of ferment 50 years ago in the 70s, like it, at Lausanne, people were like, oh, the social justice evangelicals have had their day and now that's going to be the trend of the church. Well, gee, how did that work out? Um, but I think that what's different now is precisely the demographic decline of the white evangelical mainstream. I don't, I don't mean to be like overly provocative or negative, but I actually take that as a hopeful sign because meanwhile the ferment on the margins is continuing and may it increase uh and i, I think in some ways maybe maybe evangelicalism is splintering um and i'm not naively saying that's a good thing but i'm saying that death and resurrection is how god works right uh if i step very far out of my historian role <laughs> but um you know, and I, I see people 
you know, I, I do encounter people who feel kind of homeless and, you know, people who feel dissatisfied with the status quo. And, and I think it's a growing number and people of all generations. Mm. Uh, I gave a talk about my book at my mother-in-law's church and there were like 30 or so people there who, which to me seemed like a lot, um, you know, and talking about a book like this, you know, at a white evangelical church. And, uh, you know, death and resurrection is how God works. And I, I see people who maybe have a sense that white evangelicalism, as we have known it, okay, maybe it should die, maybe it needs to die, but that there is in the evangelical tradition a lot of good that will live on after that death and that we can be both and kind of people as as evangelicals or people who have evangelical backgrounds we're well positioned to not play the systemic or personal game as if we have to choose one or the other that we can act uh, you know across the board on both of those fronts um and and i think that's what you see when you go to poor urban neighborhoods and you see evangelicals working, you know, yeah. um, but they're not, you know, they're not in the press, you know, making a, a fuss about things. Right. And they're framing that work as gospel work, I think, or as, right. as one component of a, of a big, much fuller gospel. I think of the work by a theolo or a New Testament scholar like Scott McKnight and who's really tried to, um, get evangelicals in particular, though it's not just evangelicals, to be thinking about what it means that um, uh, Jesus came to earth to usher in his kingdom, and that, that that's that's sort of some of the core of the gospel message. And the uh, the conversion of, of people, um, individuals, is a key part of that, but it's not the only part. Um, I think he has it as one of four uh, parts of what the gospel um, entails. And the others include uh, yeah, working for justice. And, um, I think also just so much of, of when we talk about the decline of the church or, um, or the future of the church, just going back to the way that the prophets in the old Testament thought about, um, uh, uh refining or declining as part of, um, what will lead to renewal, maybe a, another version of, of sort of d death and resurrection. Um, right. and, um, and that not not to equate the church with um, with uh, Israel in some sort of nationalistic sense, but to say that that seems to be the way that God works uh, throughout history. Um, yeah, uh, there there are periods of judgment and then periods of renewal um, that follow. Um, well, Jesse, thank you for your book. Thank you for the conversation, um, and hope hope it gets a wide readership. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.